Science and reason and rationality is the way out of this situation, is, is how we fix the problem. And, and, and almost the, to me, the details don't matter. It, you know, conveying that notion is, is enough for me. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On my episode today, I'll be exploring a favorite topic, science fiction, with a friend and fellow space industry colleague who is also an up-and-coming Canadian science fiction author. We're going to discuss some themes on communicating science and our shared love of science fiction. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please feel free to press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. Eric Choi is a writer, editor, and aerospace engineer in Toronto. He has twice won the Pre-Aurora Award, Canada's national prize for excellence in science fiction and fantasy, for his short story Crimson Sky, and for the anthology The Dragon and the Stars. And he was the first recipient of the Isaac Asimov Award, now the Dell Magazines Award, for his novelette Dedication. His short fiction has appeared in more than two dozen publications in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Hungary, and Japan. He holds a BASC in Engineering Science and an MASC in Aerospace Engineering, both from the University of Toronto, as well as an MBA from York University. In 2009, he was one of the top 40 finalists out of 5,351 applicants in the Canadian Space Agency's Astronaut Recruitment Campaign. Eric, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Are you from Toronto originally? How old were you when you started reading science fiction? I was actually born in Hong Kong. Um, my uh, parents uh, worked at the airport there. So I think that was probably the early genesis of my interest in, you know, as a minimum things that go into the sky. And uh, later on, I guess, things that kind of go beyond the sky. In terms of my interest in science fiction, I'm one of these people that's uh, old enough to remember the original Star Trek series. Although I do emphasize, I did not watch it in its original run, but <laughs> merely in syndication uh, many years after the fact. And one of my earliest recollections, you know, having this really lousy TV, um, you know, back in the day in, in Brampton, Ontario, at, uh, in the family home, was this grainy footage of this unfortunate man in a red shirt who was just about to be consumed or devoured or dissolved by some acid-secreting creature, which I later learned was, of course, the classic episode, The Devil in the Dark. Um, it actually scared the hell out of me, but uh, I found that you know, something really compelling about, uh, about that show, Star Trek, and uh, really that's what I think you know, got me interested in science fiction. And as I got a little older, you know, my parents did one of perhaps you know one of the most you know beautiful and important things that uh, any parent 
can do besides being a parent is to introduce me to that wonderful institution called a public library. And it was there that, you know, I started reading, you know, the stuff. So, you know, sort of the, uh, the old school Arthur Clarke stuff and, uh, you know, a lot of the genre fiction, the Star Wars and the Star Trek novels back in the day. And uh, I'd say it, uh, it sort of got started from there. We, I think, originally met in the in the very small world of the Canadian space industry. You've you've been involved in a number of Canadian space science missions. I think that apart from the from the Canada arm, Canadians are mostly ignorant about our involvement in space science as as a whole. Um, the world is soon going to be seeing some really beautiful images from the James Webb Space Telescope that. Uh, we built the fine guidance sensor for here in Ottawa. I mean, very few people are probably aware of that as well. Right. And, and you, of course, were personally a big part of that. Uh, a, a small part of a big team, uh, but uh, <laughs> really looking forward to these images coming out. Can, can you tell us all a little bit about what you've worked on in the space industry? Well, maybe I'll get started with uh, perhaps a bit of a shameless plug for my uh, day job employer, which is a Montreal-based uh, small business called GHGSat. So uh, we at GHGSat, we have three microsatellites in orbit right now that are doing facility-level greenhouse gas methane monitoring. So what's unique about our satellites is the ability at very high spectral and spatial resolution to detect these methane emissions literally down to the facility level, down to, say, an individual landfill or, or an oil and gas facility. And this is remarkably something that nobody else in the world right now and this little company out of Montreal is is able to do this and and further to your point Al and something that uh, we like to talk about is literally everything we do at GHGSat is done in Canada uh, except for the launch and you know there's people working on launching from Canada as as, as we speak but uh, the spacecraft uh, buses the platforms are uh, built uh, right here uh, where I am in in Toronto at the space flight laboratory uh, you know Al your your company Honeywell is uh, GHG sats partner in the aircraft version of the sensor uh, the space sensor is built by ABB in Quebec uh, we've got uh, partners in Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, a company called Secor that helps us out with the, with the ground segment. So, you know, everything in, in this remarkable enterprise is, is done in Canada. And in my own career, I've had the privilege in, in a very small way to be involved, uh, as we both have been, Al, in uh, remarkable projects like KeySat, the quantum encryption and science satellite, which uh, in just, uh, I guess, a very few short years time, uh, we'll be demonstrating uh, revolutionary quantum key distribution between Earth and space. And in my own career, I've been fortunate to have been involved in projects like sending a meteorological LIDAR instrument to Mars as part of Canada's contribution to the uh, Phoenix Mars Lander mission. And I started, my undergraduate thesis was actually with uh, Dr. James Drummond, uh, uh, now retired, long retired, at the University of Toronto on a carbon monoxide sensing instrument uh, called, uh, called Moppet. 
So there, there, there's a wide breadth of Canadian uh, space activity, you know, f- you know, far beyond our, our you know, the, the, the much deserved, um, you know, accolades for for Canada Arm and Canada Arm Two, and soon to be Canada Arm Three. And um, you know, as Canadians, perhaps we're a little modest in, about these accomplishments, but you know, I think once in a while it doesn't hurt to to, to stand up and, and cheer a little bit. Yeah, no, the, the work that's being done at GHG set is, is revolutionary and, and very important, I think, in identifying uh, stray methane emissions uh, that maybe aren't being reported in the current uh, GHG monitoring uh, scenarios. I think there are some other instruments up there that measure methane at, lar- at low resolution over you know country scales. And this is mainly to support uh, reporting on on ghg components and and the market for trading you know how much does this country emit versus this country so it's very uh broad scale low resolution but then being able to actually locate it down to the to the oil well or the gas well that's that's fracking and releasing methane methane is for for those of, of the listeners who don't know uh methane is a very uh, uh potent greenhouse gas uh, it's, it's got a short lifetime in the atmosphere of about i think 25 years or something like that. Uh, so it's not as as long-lived in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, but it's one of these things that uh, has about, or no, it's it's 25 times worse than carbon dioxide, uh, but it's got a shorter lifespan in the atmosphere. So it's, you know, it's, it's very important that we don't uh, emit this. So it's, a, it's quite a useful tool, I think. Uh, and it, it, are there, are there things that you can talk about, about discoveries that this, that your, that your system's being making? Well, I just want to emphasize the point you made where you talked about the challenge of methane as as you you know have have just so well enunciated there the outsized global warming potential you know of methane over short durations but there's actually a good news story in there if you can believe it because what that means is if we are proactive and aggressive in reducing methane now we can have an outsized climate benefit in in the near term. You also mentioned some of the other methane sensing satellites up there. And I think that also brings up an interesting and and important point is that we've been seeing over the last couple of years, this, you know, remarkable uh, emergence of, I don't even know what the term is now, but, you know, it it used to be called New space or small space or, or commercial space or or, or, or 2.0, basically, you know, private or philanthropic in some cases or commercial ventures um, doing some of these space activities. And I think it's important to emphasize that it's not an either or proposition. It's not government space programs or the commercial sector. It's both of these working in a complementary manner and very much a synergistic manner to, to help us accomplish, uh, you know, the things that we want to do from, you know, for, from a scientific standpoint or, or, or any other activity we would want to do uh, in, in space. And, 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 you know, GHG side is a great example of that. So there are other methane sensing satellites up there. Uh, I can cite one example being the uh, Tropomi instrument on the Sentinel-5P satellite of the European Space Agency. So we at GHG Sat have had an ongoing scientific collaboration with ESRON. This is the 
Netherlands Space Research Institute and the Sentinel-5P team there and, and the team at the European Space Agency, where we work in synergy. So, Al, as, as you said, um, that this Tropomi instrument being one example of this, it looks on sort of broad regional scales. So a very wide swath, I believe something on the order of 2,500 kilometer swaths and five by seven kilometer pixels. And what they do is they can see areas of elevated methane, for example, and then they can task or they can tip and cue a satellite like ours at GSGSAT. So indeed, we'd get a notification and say, hey, you know, we've seen something very interesting here in Central Asia and Turkmenistan stand, for example, you know, can you folks have a look and try to identify the source? And indeed, I, I you know, citing that uh, Central Asia Turkmenistan example, uh, this has, uh, you know, happened, you know, a, a number of times where we've identified uh, significant emissions coming out of oil and gas facilities in, in, in places such as this. So, so, so very much, you know, you know, working in, uh, in, in synergy. And, and this type of thing is, is going to continue as we have, um, you know, new philanthropic missions like methane sats and new government missions like 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 geocarb um th- this is really the the, the 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 methane moment i think it's it, it's all th- all hands on deck precisely for the reasons you enunciated al of you know the the, the outsized climate impact of of methane um you know it's it, it's all good like every sensor we can get up there is 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 fantastic yeah, no, it's very important, especially with the, the links between uh, the renewable energy rollout and the gas backup that's required and the fracking that seems to be, you know, if, if I think the, the numbers are if, they, if, if gas mining releases something like 3% of the methane into the air through the fracking process, then the gas is actually as bad as coal in terms of its greenhouse gas uh, footprint. So, but I don't want to talk too much about this. I want to kind of maybe Let's talk more about science fiction. Um, you've just published a new book, uh, Just Like Being There. and I think it's an anthology of your science fiction stories. Well, first of all, um, the, the book is out, uh, but maybe just as a bit of a nitpick, it's, I'm, I'm not the one publishing it. So, you know, it wasn't the one, you know, with the, with the elbow grease and, and, and the printing press there. So it's, um, the, the publisher is actually Springer Nature, um, which uh, most of us would probably be more familiar with as an academic publisher. They actually have a science and fiction line. Um, as unusual as that sounds, but I actually think that's uh, that's really cool because you know they also see the value of science fiction in terms of science communication. I'm sure this is something we'll uh, we'll chat about a little later. But I uh, had the uh, privilege a few years ago of appearing in another one of these Springer uh, science and fiction anthologies. It was called Science Fiction by Scientists. Um, edited by a professor mike brotherton and uh so it was you know through those connections into to springer that i sort of pitched the idea that you know over the course of many years now um i've built up uh you know a little bit of a repertoire of stories and so the idea i had was to reprint some of those stories and also uh 
produce a new story, which I did. It's called The Sky in Heaven. It's actually the closing story. But um, the other thing that uh, I proposed, which they really liked, was that in addition to the stories themselves, I include uh, a, a short afterward um, following the stories that explain the scientific or, or engineering background uh, behind the story that uh, a reader has has just read. So uh, this collection has uh, has just come out, and it's got uh, 15 of uh, what's called a hard SF stories. So these are the ones that are allegedly, anyway, um, you know, you know, scientifically consistent, and you know, try to follow known laws of you know, current laws of science uh, with, with reasonable extrapolations. And um, a few of my alternate history stories as well. So, you know, what, what might have happened if um, this uh, particular Chinese-born rocket scientist uh, had not been deported from the United States as he was in the 1950s? Or uh, what might have been done to uh, possibly save the astronauts on the Space Shuttle Columbia back in 2003, and that's the subject of the new story, A Sky in Heaven, which, uh, which closes the collection. Wow, that's great. Um, I, I love hard science fiction. I love, you know, this is uh, you know, often based in reality and speculating about new discoveries or new understandings. And it, My favorite thing is when I get a new idea or I'm inspired by a story. One, one of my favorite authors who, who is, who's done that repeatedly was Greg Egan. Um, I first read Diaspora a few years ago and I was kind of blown away by his depiction of a of the future where societies can transfer their consciousness to supercomputers and experience the universe at different speeds depending on their chosen clock rates. Uh, and he had a great sequence in that where there was a, a new AI was generated and become sentient. Um, so, so here's a question I usually ask at the end of my interviews, uh, which author inspires you what, what what do you like in science fiction what, what's your favorite well it's it, it, it's hard to pin one down um as i said earlier in in my remarks uh, you know as uh, as a young person as a kid i did read a lot of sort of the the older classic so-called classic stuff so you know i was very much inspired by by arthur c clark for example and uh recognizing that uh, back in the day he was of course himself having an engineering background so the notion of somebody with a technology or technical background being able to write and having um Having that as a forum to, to, as you say, to to express, you know, just 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 cool ideas about stuff. So, like, you know, what, you know, what would you do if uh, you, you had a a space elevator, like, uh, you know, like in the Fountains of Paradise, or, um, you know, stuff like Rendezvous with with Rama, which, you know. Perhaps not a lot there from a characterization or plot standpoint, let's be honest, but my goodness, were there, you know, sort of cool ideas and, you know, and, you know, cool physics being, uh, being explored in that. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's part of what interests me the most as, as you say, as, as sort of like a, a playground for new ideas. And, and indeed, I think it was Larry Niven who called, you know, science fiction as sort of like, like a playground of, of, of the mind and as a, as a way of getting interesting ideas out there. Um, you know, as a, as a kid, I, I vividly remember reading in, in analog, uh, a series of, of short stories by, uh, James Gunn, uh, the, the grandmaster who, um, 
he had these stories. That, so it was like a time traveler with the generic name of Bill Johnson. And this person would go back in time and, and fix, do something uh, to, to fix some kind of collapse, you know, societal ill. But every time he did that, you know, the, the, the circumstances under which he was sent back in time had changed. So he loses his memory. So he has to write these little notes to himself to remind himself of who he is and, and, and why he's there. But why he's doing what he's doing. But one of the stories I, I remember, and unfortunately I've forgotten the title, is um, it was a story that, that dealt with pollution and environmental degradation. And the, the, the solution that was come up with was the idea of putting a, a, a fee or a price on, on emissions. And, and my goodness, this is this is carbon pricing. This 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 is uh, this is cap and trade. And and this was something that was at least. You know, if not the first, then you know one of the one of the early you know conceptualizations of this was uh, was in science fiction. Um, in in terms of uh, authors that that I personally like, you know, we're we're very fortunate, I think, in, in Canada that you know not only do we have a, a, a vibrant and um, you know you know very active and highly contributing space program that I. You know, wish that that more people knew about, but you know, Canada has also been a, a great place for, uh, for for science fiction writers. So, for ex- and, and and I I should add as well, science fiction writers, many of whom uh, themselves have uh, have a scientific background. For so, for example, uh, people like uh, like Premi Mohammed, who uh, won a Nebula Award this year, um, she is a molecular uh, geneticist from from Edmonton. Uh, Peter Watts uh, from Toronto, and I, I think you know you and I both share love of his novel Blind Sight. So he's a he's a, a marine biologist. Uh, Julie Chernada, um, who's now in the Ottawa area, she's uh, she's a biologist by uh, by background, and I, I have to admit to a, a little bit of a conflict of interest with with Julie Trinada because um, not only has she been you know very kind to have purchased a number of my stories but in one of her early novels in the company of others um, I'm actually a character in her novel and ah. like as Eric <laughs> Choi and, and and I don't die or anything which is oh, which is uh, <laughs> r- really uh, r- really <laughs> remarkable um you know, uh, you know Robert J. Sawyer, uh, another great uh, Canadian uh, science fiction writer. Um, yeah, just uh, just oh, uh, you know, uh, you know Robert Charles Wilson, uh, American Canadian science fiction writer that uh, that I very much uh, very much enjoy. And in terms of you know short fiction, I, I like stuff by uh, uh, Ted Chiang and and. Uh, Ken Liu. So, you know, you, know, you could, I, I, I'm sure, you know, anybody can have a you know, terrific, terrific list. There's, there's just so much good stuff out there. I wish I had more time to read. And you mentioned as uh, Peter Watts and Blindsight, that was something I think you recommended to me uh, a couple of years back. It was a great story uh, from, from which I've actually taken, I took inspiration. I mean, it was, a, I loved the, the idea. Uh, it ex- and it explores the idea it's supported by a lot of studies that consciousness is, is just an emergent process of our complex brains and that maybe volition and free will is something of an illusion. I think similar to the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, is suggesting. Uh, and this is something I'm exploring on the podcast right now is, is the theories of consciousness and how our yeah, subjective experience, yeah. uh, how our subjective experience 
uh, is maybe just a post hoc narrative of what the body is actually doing on its own without our in our conscious involvement, all of the subconscious things and blind sight was, was, was a, a great example. So I really appreciate that, that you send me that link. And, and this, now you have a whole list of other ones that I have to read. It. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so I, I feel like uh, science fiction inspired a lot of people like you and I maybe to enter STEM fields uh, and go through university and, and get degrees and, and contribute uh, to, you know, to imagine better worlds that we can strive for together. Uh, you know, the Star Trek universe, for example, as you, as you said, uh, kind of shows us a future world where the nations of earth can cooperate. And as the Federation of planets, uh, you know, people rarely mention struggling for money on Star Trek. It's a, it's a world where there's a plentiful, uh, food and energy and, uh, you know, people are, are working to better themselves. And this is the sort of world that, you know, some of us are striving for. And I, th I think society has come to a bit of a crossroads right now where there's a lot of people that are saying we need to turn our backs on technology and go back to nature and return almost to a to a simple dark ages kind of situation. Where And there's this uh, a tension, I think, in society between the two, the futuristic decoupling that is promoted by the Star Trek universe and is exemplified by the eco-modernist movement. Uh, when you're writing science fiction, are you trying to convey a message for the future? Perhaps not overtly, but a lot of the issues that you enunciated there are, are very much on my mind. So if gratuitous plug, if you were to be so kind as to pick up a copy of Just Like Being There, I think you can sort of see a pattern in a lot of my works that um, at the end of the day, it is, you know, reason and rationality are important and that this is the way that we get ourselves out of trouble and this is the way that, um, that, that, that we solve problems. And, you know, Technology is is neutral. You know, at the end of the day, as human beings, we we choose to use that for for good or ill. But if we do choose it, choose to use it for good, then you know, there you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we can build you know that uh, that that aspirational future that uh, that in many ways has been so powerfully. Um, you know, enunciated and, and portrayed in, in various works of science fiction, you know, both on the page and, and on the screen. Yeah, it, it exemplifies different models and, and it allows us to explore in our mind's eye what could be if, if maybe certain very, and, and, you know, change is difficult. Change displaces people that are doing well and, and, and gives things to other people. And it's, it's difficult to see the path to get to these changes that we might want to see in society. And communicating science, I think, is, is at the root of some of these things. It's challenging in a world where so social media is creating echo chambers, and these echo chambers are being exploited by vested interests to amplify alternative facts, for example. Um, how do we communicate science better to people is there is there what can we do uh, as as scientists and engineers to we're not i feel like we're not doing a good job do you have any insights into what we can do 
Well, I, 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 I think, um, you know, some of us are doing a good job. I won't speak for myself, but I'll speak for you, Al. So certainly venues like the Rational View podcast is, is you doing your part to, to, to spread the good word and, and in a very powerful way. I'll mention that the, the title story of my collection, Just Like Being There, uh, originally appeared in uh, a series that uh, I mentioned Julie Chernada earlier. So Julie Chernada is very much involved and very passionate about science education, particularly at younger ages and, and younger grades in school. So uh, just like being there, originally appeared in a, a series that she did called Tales from the Wonder Zone, which were science fiction stories targeted at young readers that reflected the then um, science curriculum in, in the province of Ontario for, uh, for, for particular grade ranges. So there is, I think, a lot to be said about, um, you know, starting at, at, at a young age. And ultimately, a, a lot of it is, you know, in order to, to counter perhaps some of the, the negative uh, influences that you've cited there, Al, is you know if if those types of narratives are are, are out there and and being broadcast, then it's equally important or greater important that you know people like yourself through the rational view are are also equally standing up and uh, and and sort of shouting from the rooftops, if you will, and, and trying to to be heard. I'll, I'll maybe say one thing about. Um, you know, some some of the media type, you know, quotation mark science fiction like Star Trek. You, you talk about, you know, how, how how can we promote science? Well, you know, let, let, let's be honest. Like, you know, a lot of the media stuff and indeed a lot of science fiction and, you know, I, I would, you know, put some of my stuff in the same category. The science is not always rigorous or or, or realistic uh, and in some cases that it is, um, you know, it may not have aged well over time. But, I, you know, I would argue that that almost doesn't matter as much as sort of the, the philosophical notion that, that you know, the, the, the Star Trek, um, you know, particle of the week type of thing. It's like it's all nonsense, of course. But the fundamental notion there was that science and reason and rationality is the way out of this situation is is how we fix the problem and and, and, and almost the, to me the details don't matter it, you know conveying that notion is is enough for me and i think that's a good thing no i agree and that that's definitely you know where i've been coming from as well and thank you for the kind words about the podcast uh, uh this definitely is the, the way i think that i can make a difference the, I think in the past, science and technology um, got caught up with institutional issues and has created some mistrust. You have people afraid of big pharma, which then believe that, you know, vaccines are bad or people afraid of things that are justifiably who have been hurt by actions of large corporations or um, institutions that have used um, power over them in a not a great way. And I think this 
shouldn't reflect on the science and technology. What it should reflect on is how we build our social institutions and uh, how we work together in a, in a better way going forward. But there are people that have taken this to say science is bad, technology is bad, you know, almost a Luddite uh, perspective that we seem to be encountering in a lot of social interactions. So you know, that's the sort of message that I try to convey in a lot of cases is, is that science is a tool. It's not good or bad. It's not, uh, you know, we're not all mad scientists out to take over the world. Um, speaking for myself, you know, most of those people are mad engineers. <laughs> you know, I have to confess there might be some truth to that. <laughs> Well, you know, to your point, um, I think I'd like to paraphrase David Brin, who is, uh, you know, another great example of a science fiction writer who himself has a scientific background. I believe he's an astronomer. But, you know, David Brin has pointed out that a lot of this you know, skepticism or, or, or questioning of, of science and, and, um, and institutions actually comes from a good place um, that, you know, we should be skeptical, we, we should be questioning, and we should be challenging, um, you know, existing institutions, existing, you know, power, power structures. But I think what's equally important to realize is that science itself actually embodies all that, that the process of science is constantly questioning and constantly self-critical and constantly self-correcting, which ultimately is why science works and, you know, why it's, it's, you know, it's trustworthy and that on net balance, it has been a, a, a positive thing for, uh, for, 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 for the, for the human race. And, and I think, you know, we talked earlier about, um, science education and you know a, a, as a personal opinion maybe where we need to change science education is not to portray it as sort of established uh you know facts that are brought down on high from for, you know up for, from authority because you know you know scientists or engineers or whomever else can can be as right or wrong as as anybody because what that happens is you set up this thing as well you know i read abc from from this non-scientific source and i read x y and z from this and they're just presented to me as statements. You know, how do I know? You know, which one is credible, which one to believe? And ultimately, I, I think an important science literacy education is not the presentation of established statements, but to educate the on the scientific method, frankly, scientific processes, um, the, the fact of you know the the the, the fundamentals of you know, you know, testing hypotheses and, and, and data and, and the weight of, of evidence, which is why ultimately, and it is therefore for this reason that if you're told something from, from this scientific source versus this other source, why the scientific source tends to be more credible that you should probably lend more, cre uh, you know, you know, lend more weight to. Yeah, no, that's an important point. Uh, science is not a dogma. Science is an evolving uh, 
collective set of measurements and observations about our universe where we you know, together try to converge on a better understanding of the processes. And I, I you know, I've encountered this, uh, you know, when I was in university and I was TAing uh, first year physics and people would do experiments and measurements in their classroom. And then they would present the results and say, well, this result is wrong because it doesn't agree with the, uh, with the expected value. And I said, no, no, you're doing science. Your measurement is as valid as the, as the expected number. And, you know, as long as you, uh, capture the uncertainties in your measurement and say, okay, we've measured this, it's way off of the expected number, but these are, these are the uncertainties in the measurement. And you can see that because of, you know, our, our, we don't use, you know, very precise measuring equipment that we're far off. And this is a, a valid scientific measurement. You are contributing to scientific knowledge. You are not comparing to a dogma. And then th it's that sort of, that sort of a living uh, mech organism that is science that need, people need to understand. And it's not a dogma. Dogma is for religions. Science is something that, that you that you have the ability to upend and to, and if you make an observation that's different, that's valid. That's what science is about is you making your observations and comparing them and understanding and, and finding people that you can respect that are also doing the same sort of thing. And, and, and if you need to, you can reproduce all of the measurements, you know, if you have enough money and equipment. <laughs> well, you know, Al, you're, you're very, kind and excellent TA, and I, I wish I had you as a TA in my undergrad, when in undergrad physics lab, I did the Millikan oil drop experiment and came up with a value of E over M that was two orders of magnitude greater than the commonly accepted value, which um, I thoroughly attribute to my own incompetence. And uh, I, so, so I would dismiss that right away as uh, having any sort of validity. Well, yeah, certainly there, there could be other factors involved, but you know, the <laughs> uh, so, so this is good. You know, I wish I had more time to read. And thank you for all the recommendations of Canadian authors uh, on the science fiction scene. Uh, this, this is great. Uh, I really appreciate your recommendations. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I read the Foundation series as a, you know when I was very young, and iRobot and Dune, and uh, one of the books I remember was. Uh, uh, Poole Anderson's uh, Tau Zero. I don't know if you're aware of that. It was a, a really cool story about a runaway Bassard ramjet uh, that that basically they couldn't put the brakes on, so they decided to accelerate it. And because of time dilation, as they approached the speed of light, they watched the universe uh, evolve and then die and recollapse re and emerge in a new universe. It was really a cool a cool story that, like, wow, this is great. Yeah, That yeah. was Tau Zero, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, the, the, some of the examples you cited there, what's, uh, what I think has been fantastic as well is there have been, you know, recent screen adaptations of Foundation and Dune that I, I think are bringing these wonderful stories to, to a whole new audience, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's something that wasn't very popular. You know, when, I, when we were younger, I think it was mostly uh, your movies were Westerns and... Uh, well, what westerns or, or samurai <laughs> stories in space, which is ultimately what you know the the first Star Wars movie was, right? <laughs> I guess yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, I, I I feel very lucky to to be able to experience some of the the the, the explosion of the genre in film right now. It's it's great fun. Uh, really enjoy it. 
So I think uh, we're getting to the end of our time slot here. It's been a, a pleasure chatting with you, Eric. Uh, I appreciate you coming on for, and for coming on, I'm going to send you a t-shirt uh, of the <laughs> Thank rational you so view. much. Uh, and I really, really appreciate it. Uh, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, the, 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 the pleasure is mine, Al. And uh, I hope that uh, COVID permitting, uh, we'll be able to catch up in person at some point. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.